0: As we continue in Acts, did everybody get a chance to read Acts chapter 7 this week? If not, we're going to do it again today, so don't worry. So as we we begin Acts chapter 7, Stephen stands accused of teaching against Moses, God, the temple, and the Torah. The synagogue has argued and argued with Stephen over doctrine and could not win. So back in chapter 6, it says that they could not stand up to his wisdom or the spirit by which he spoke. How many times have you tried talking to friends, family, colleagues, pastors, friends, about what God's word so plainly says, only to be met with anger when they are unable to produce a response? So that's, that's kind of what we're seeing here. Except these guys were poor losers because they went and persuaded some men to allege that Stephen spoke blasphemously against Moses and against God. So they stirred everyone up, the elders, the Torah teachers, and they had him arrested and dragged before the Sanhedrin. Then they set up false witnesses who accused him of speaking against the temple and the Torah. By this time, there's a sizable mob ready to lynch Stephen. Yet it says Stephen's face was like the face of an angel. Who, who wrote the book of Acts again? Luke did. So Luke more than likely included this little detail about Stephen's face to draw some connection to Moses. Because um, as we read in Exodus, Moses' face was shining after having been in the presence of God on Mount Sinai. So now we have the stage kind of set. We're going to go ahead and read Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7, the Kohen HaGadol asked, are these accusations true? And Stephen said, brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to Abraham Avinu in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, leave your land and your family and go into the land that I will show you. So he left the land of the Kasdim and lived in Haran. After his father died, God made him move to this land where you are living now. He gave them no inheritance in it, not even space for one foot. Yet he promised to give it to him as a possession and to his descendants after him. Even though at that time he was childless, what God said to him was, your descendants will be aliens in a foreign land where they will be in slavery and oppressed for 400 years. But I will judge that nation that enslaves them, God said. And afterwards they will leave and worship me in this place. And he gave him Britain along, so he became the father of Isaac and did his brit on the eighth day, a circumcision. And Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob became the father of the twelve patriarchs. Now the patriarchs grew jealous of Joseph and sold him into slavery in Egypt. But Adonai was with him; He rescued him from all his troubles and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who appointed him chief administrator over Egypt and over all his household. Now there became a famine that caused much suffering throughout Egypt and Canaan. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers there the first time. The second time, Joseph revealed his identity to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. Joseph then sent for his father Jacob and all his relatives, 75 people. And Jacob went down to Egypt. There he died, as did our other ancestors. Their bodies were removed to Shechem. And buried in the tomb, Abraham had bought from the family of Hamor in Shechem for a certain sum of money. As the time grew near for the fulfillment of the promise God had made to Abraham, the number of the people in Egypt increased greatly. Until there arose another king over Egypt who had no knowledge of Joseph. With cruel cunning, this man forced our fathers to put their newborn babies outside their homes so that they would not survive. It was then that Moshe was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. For three months he was reared in his father's house, and when he was put out of his home, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. So Moshe was trained in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and became both a powerful speaker and a man of action. But when he was 40 years old, the thought came to him to visit his brother's. The people of Israel, on seeing one of them being mistreated, he went to his defense and took revenge by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed his brothers would understand that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not understand. When he appeared the next day as they were fighting and tried to make peace between them by saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? The one who was mistreating his fellow pushed Moshe away and said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me the way that you killed that Egyptian yesterday? On hearing this, Moshe fled the country and became an exile in the land of Midian where he, was, where he had two sons. After 40 more years, an angel appeared to him in the desert near Mount Sinai in the flames of the burning thorn bush. When Moshe saw this, he was amazed at that sight. He was amazed at the sight. And as he approached to get a better look, there came the voice of Adonai, I am the God of, the, of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But Moshe trembled with fear and didn't dare look. Adonai said to him, Take off your sandals, because the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have clearly seen how my people are being oppressed in Egypt. I have heard their cry, and I have come down to rescue them, and now I will send you to Egypt. This Moshe, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge? Is this the one... Is this the very one whom God sent as his as both ruler and ransomer by means of the angel that appeared to him in the thorn bush? This man led them out, performing miracles and signs in Egypt at the Red Sea in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moshe who said to the people of Israel, God will raise up a prophet like me from among your brothers. This is the man who was in the assembly in the wilderness, accompanied by the angel that had spoken to him at Mount Sinai and by our fathers, the man who has given... "'living words to pass on to us. "'But our fathers did not want to obey him. "'On the contrary, they rejected him, "'and in their hearts turned to Egypt, "'saying to Aaron, "'Make us some gods to lead us, "'because this Moshe who has led us out of Egypt, "'we don't know what has become of him.' "'That was when they made an idol in the shape of a calf "'and offered a sacrifice to it "'and held a celebration in honor "'of what they had made with their own hands. "'So God turned away from them "'and gave them over to worship the stars.' As he has written in the book of the prophets People of Israel it was not to me That you offered slaughtered animals And sacrifices for forty years in the wilderness No you carried the tent of Molech and the star of your God Riphon. The idols you made So that you could worship them Therefore I will send you into exile Beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent Of witness in the wilderness It had been made just as God who spoke To Moshe had ordered it made According to the pattern Moshe had seen Later on, our fathers who had received it brought it in with Jehoshua when they took the land away from the nations that God drove out before them. So it was until it was until the days of David he enjoyed God's favor and asked if he would might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. And Shlomo did build him a house, but how Eliom does not live in places made by hands, as the prophet says, "Heaven is my throne," says Adonai, "and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house could you build for me?" What kind of place could you devise for my rest? Didn't I myself make all of these things? Stiff-necked people, with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you continually oppose the Ruach HaKodesh. You do the same things your fathers did. Which of, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who told in advance about the coming of the sadiq and now you have become his betrayers and murderers. You, who receive the Torah as having been delivered by angels, but do not keep it. On hearing these things, they were cut to their hearts and ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Ruach HaKodesh, looked up to heaven and saw God's Shekinah. With Yeshua standing at the right hand of God, look, he exclaimed, I see heaven opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they began yelling at the top of their voices so that they wouldn't have to hear him. And with one accord, they rushed at him, threw him outside the city and began stoning him. And the witnesses laid down their coats at the feet of a young man named Shaul. As they were stoning him, Stephen called out to God, Lord Yeshua, receive my spirit. Then he kneeled down and shouted, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. With that, he died. So, that is the longest speech in the book of Acts. I also want to preface this by saying that I'm going to be throwing a lot of information at you this morning. And I do not have the time to go through all the different views and positions that there are on this particular teaching. But with that said, I'll try to address any questions or comments at the end. So the high priest here at this time is who? It's Caiaphas. And he's the head of the said dream. And the question here is, are these accusations true? The response of Stephen is long and doesn't really address the question directly. Why did he just say no, or perhaps explain that the charges were exaggerated or greatly distorted from what he had said? We need to keep at the forefront of our minds as we view this story that the false accusers were from a local synagogue. Thus, while they occasionally visited the temple for sacrifice and ceremony, their main allegiance and the place where they received their religious doctrines was their synagogue. The synagogue is called the Synagogue of the Freedmen. So who are these men from the Synagogue of the Freedmen? Some scholars believe that these persons were slaves of the Romans who had been freed to become proselytes of the Jewish religion and had a synagogue in Jerusalem. Other scholars contend that these freedmen were not Jewish proselytes, but Jews by birth who had been taken into captivity by the Romans and then set free. There were many such Jews. Some, many, some have speculated That among these zealous members Of the synagogue of the freedmen Was Shaul, who would have been than capable of disputing with Stephen In matters of religion I kind of tend to lean more towards the latter Being correct, however, as for Paul Being a member of the synagogue I just don't know But what I do know about Paul is that he was A very smart man And he was a disciple of Gamliel And he did have Roman citizenship We all know that much about Paul But the primary issue here with the synagogue of the freedmen was their claim that Stephen was blaspheming Moses. What they actually meant by blaspheming Moses is that he was disputing their traditions. They considered that to be blasphemy. And this was because the traditions, which is also called oral Torah, I'm sure many of you have heard that. That were rabbinical interpretations Of the written Torah of Moses Was the epicenter of the synagogue And whatever it was that Stephen said They took it as an assault On those cherished traditions So we need to understand The place of the synagogue In the New Testament times Before Babylon, Jewish life And religion sought direction from the temple That was the God-ordained way And it was generally the only source available it was the priests and Levites' job, among other things, to, to teach the people the law of Moses and then enforce it. And it was to be followed by all Hebrews, since it was given by God at Mount Sinai through Moses to all the Hebrews, all 12 tribes plus the Levites. However, several centuries later, that situation changed dramatically. Around 700 years prior to Yeshua, 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel were sent away and exiled to foreign lands for their disobedience to God. The Assyrians were the Lord's hand of judgment for the uh, northern kingdom of Israel. The ten tribes that formed northern Israel were conquered and scattered throughout the vast Assyrian Empire, and due to their disinterest in being Hebrews any longer, most assimilated into the world of the Gentiles throughout the giant Asian continent, and others were sent to North Africa. What remained of the Hebrews in in the Holy Land was the tribe of Judah and Benjamin, But rather quickly, Benjamin assimilated into the tribe of Judah. Uh, The name that was given to the people of Judah was, that's where we get the term Jews from. So it's, and soon enough, they too would be exiled. But for them, it would be by Babylon. They would go into Babylon. So because one result of the Babylonian conquest was the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, and thus the end of a functioning priesthood, the religion that used the Torah of Moses as its civil and religious code was replaced with something else. And that something else was a mixture of Torah and newly formed traditions. Since this was only applicable to those of the tribe of Judah, seeing as how the ten tribes were no longer present, this new hybrid religion became the basis of what we now know today as Judaism. The Jews at that time didn't actually refer to their religion as Judaism. That would come centuries later. Nonetheless, all the practices and customs that in time gained the label of Judaism were being developed and practiced by the Jews during and after the Babylonian captivity. So to be clear, it was against this hybrid religion of Torah and tradition, whose home was the synagogue, a religion that we call Judaism that Stephen is said to have offended. So let's kind of be clear on that real quick. So remember, the temple was controlled by the priests and the Sadducees. And the temple and the Sadducees denied the validity of the very thing that the synagogues taught, believed in, and demanded adherence to, and that is traditions and oral Torah. So the oral Torah, for those of you who do not know, the oral Torah or the oral law represents those Laws, statutes, and legal interpretations That were not recorded in the five books of Moses What we call the written Torah But nonetheless are regarded by Orthodox Jews As prescriptive and given at the same time So the next question here Is Stephen distancing himself from his Jewish brothers in the Torah? No Verse 2 immediately answers that question Because he calls them brothers and fathers He says, listen to me. Stephen makes it clear that he regards himself as one of them, and they remain a part of him as well. He's in no way separating himself from the Jews of Judea. And from here, he goes on to recall the heritage that he feels he shares with his brothers and sisters. The heritage that all Jews know starts with Abraham, whom he calls our father. Not your father, not my father, our father. It is important to note that everything that Stephen is quoting about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and Joseph is theoretically taken directly from the Torah so that he could demonstrate both his knowledge of the Torah as well as his dedication to it. But a problem arises that isn't so easy to spot unless you know what to look for. So if we check the Hebrew Bible, some of the details that Stephen quotes doesn't quite quite line up with what the Torah says. For example, let's drop down. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to Acts 7, verse 14. We have Stephen saying that Jacob and all of his relatives went down to Egypt to meet Joseph, and he said that there were 75 of them. However, in Genesis 46, it says this. This is from the complete Jewish Bible. The sons of Joseph, this is, Genesis 46 verse 27 The sons of Joseph Born to him in Egypt Were two in number Thus all the people In Jacob's family Who entered Egypt Numbered 70 Stephen said 75 Does that mean he's A blasphemy you know No So The Hebrew Tanakh Says 70 Not 75 However In the Samaritan Pentateuch And in the Greek Septuagint The number says 75 The Samaritans had established their own temple and priesthood and also modified the Torah in some ways to match their traditions. So it's widely accepted that the Samaritan Pentateuch was formulated by 122 B.C. Modern scholarship also holds that the Septuagint was written between the 1st and 3rd centuries B.C. It's also worth mentioning that there's also those who hold to the belief that the Septuagint is a document that came along much later than is quoted But here, Stephen is a Hellenized Jew. His name is Greek. Stephen, I mean, you'll know me, Jews named Stephen. His first language is Greek. So, could Stephen perhaps have been from Samaria? Could he possibly be a Samaritan himself? I'm not saying he is. But the people present would have caught the differences between the Hebrew Torah, which we call the Masoretic text. And the Greek Torah Because the synagogue Mostly used the Greek Torah While the temple Strictly used the Hebrew Torah Well anyway, We'll continue on. So let's move down to Acts 7 Verse 15 and 16 There Stephen says That the place that Abraham Bought for a tomb For his family Was in Shechem And he bought that tomb From Hamor of Shechem But listen however To the Hebrew Tanakh in Genesis 23, verse 17 through 20. This is about where Abraham bought the burial plot. Thus the field of Ephron and Machpelah, which is in Mamre, the field, its caves and all the trees in and around it were deeded to Abraham as his possession in the presence of the sons of Heth, who belonged to the ruling council of the city. Then Abraham buried Sarah his wife in the cave of the field of Machpelah by Mamre, also known as Hebron, in the land of Canaan. This, the field in its cave, had been purchased by Abraham from the sons of Het as a burial site which would belong to him. I know Stephen was talking about Aaron, Jacob, and Joseph, and not Sarah and Shechem. However, once again, listen to another passage. This is from Genesis 49 29 through 33. Then he, meaning Jacob, charged them as follows. I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my ancestors in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, the cave in the field of Machpelah by Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought together with the field from Ephron the Hittite as a burial place belonging to him. There they buried Abraham and his wife Sarah. There they buried Isaac and his wife Rivka. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave in it, which was purchased from the sons of Het. When Jacob had finished charging his sons, he drew his legs up into the bed, breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. The point is that the Hebrew Bible, the Tanakh, says that Jacob was buried in the same cave as Abraham buried Sarah. And that cave was bought from the Ephron the Hittite, and it was near Hebron not Shechem. So was Stephen just a poor student of the Bible and just mumbling nonsense to everybody? The Samaritan tradition was that Abraham bought the cave from Hamor and buried everyone near Shechem, not Hebron. So why this different tradition? Because Shechem was in Samaria and Hebron was in the south of Judea. So Stephen was quoting the Samaritan tradition about the burial place of the patriarchs. So why else would he do that If perhaps he wasn't a Samaritan himself He certainly wouldn't have learned that in the temple So one theory And I'm saying this is just a theory Is that Stephen was himself A hated Samaritan Who had practiced the Samaritan religion Until sometime before He himself became a believer That's just a theory We could speculate That he was probably a Jew Who lived in Samaria from birth and so was, of course, taught the Samaritan traditions, and he had not yet let go of the traditions of the Samaritans, or just as likely didn't even know that he didn't even know that the Hebrew Bible had a different didn't had a different tradition, which I doubt. But at once that became clear to his accusers from the synagogue and the Sanhedrin. He was quite literally, possibly, a dead man walking if he was a Samaritan. <laughs> To them, Stephen being a Samaritan would explain his supposed bent against Judaism. And it explains to us why the men of the synagogue reacted so irrationally about the supposed destruction of, that Stephen's master, Yeshua, was going to wreak upon the Jerusalem temple. And the, the, the topic of the temple was a very sensitive one as well, because the Samaritans had a rival temple. They also they had their own temple at Mount Gerizim and thought that the Jerusalem temple was illegitimate and vice versa. So jealousy and rivalry is a terrible thing, especially when it involves religion. But Stephen, being a Samaritan, would also explain the blind hatred that they felt towards him once they figured out that he was indeed a Samaritan and thus their murderous desire to kill him immediately. So the next step, Stage of history that Stephen recounts Is the life of Joseph There are Two points to this part Of Stephen's speech First is that it shows the fulfillment of God's Oracle to Abraham That Israel would wind up in a foreign land As slaves before they received Their own land inheritance And how it came about Second is that Stephen points out How Israel continues to continued with a long pattern of at times being faithful and at other times being rebellious and how God would punish and then rescue with the goal of redemption for Israel's grave trespasses and thus never closing the door on the possibility of God's mercy and Israel's restoration yet there are there may well be a third point that stephen's making by focusing on Joseph Joseph's life somewhat mirrors that of Yeshua and considering that Stephen was all about preaching the gospel, I am convinced that that he intended very much to draw this, this parallel between Joseph and Yeshua. And he does so by pointing out that Joseph was the savior of Israel by bringing the clan to Egypt to survive a famine. But at first, Israel didn't recognize their own brother and thus didn't know for a time the identity uh, didn't know that their Savior was actually one of their own. So Stephen recalls that once it was established that Joseph would save Israel, his father Jacob brought all of his clan to Egypt and that it was there that he died. But his bones were brought with Israel when they left Egypt for Canaan. And says, verse 17, this was a fulfillment of God's oracle to Abraham to first send Israel to a foreign land and then rescue them from it and bring them into their own land, the promised land. So now Stephen sets the stage for the advent of Moses By briefly speaking about Israel's terrible time in Egypt Shortly before their deliverance When newborn Hebrew babies were cruelly killed On order of the Pharaoh And this was due to the dramatic multiplying of Israel's population In the most impossible of circumstances One of the things being accomplished here Is that Stephen is cementing his personal identity with Moses Calling him beautiful So that any charges against him That would blaspheme or deny Moses Would be rendered absurd Stephen goes on to explain That in a wonderful irony Moses, a hated Hebrew Was raised in Pharaoh's household And given the best education But then verse 23 tells us something That ties in with our long discussion Of Judaism in the synagogue Let's see if many of you caught this Stephen says that Moses was 40 years old When still as a member of Pharaoh's household He decides he wants to go and visit his Israelite brothers This of course doesn't mean that there was a journey involved It just means that Moses had been segregated from the Hebrew community That lived next to the ethnic Egyptian community But nowhere in the Torah do we find that Moses was 40 years old When he went to go see his Israelite brothers That's not in the book, you can go check so did Stephen just use A bit of rhetorical license To just make something up? Did he just invent some number To embellish his story? In fact it was, a, it was a number That at least the mob That wanted to kill him Would have at least agreed with The number 40 is a tradition It came from the synagogue And since Stephen was As were all Jews in this era Products of the synagogue Except for the priests and Levites Who were products of the temple. He simply took this tradition of Moses being 40 at this time as immutable fact. I point this out because it is another opportunity to demonstrate that the thought processes of the writers and Bible characters of the New Testament, all of it, revolved around the synagogue and oral Torah or tradition. They did so automatically and unconsciously because that's what they knew. It was simply part of who they were. It's not unlike Christianity, accepting December 25th as the date that Jesus was born. There is not one hint in the Bible that this is the case. But because the Roman Catholic Church authorities long ago, well the Roman Church authorities long ago deemed it to be so, few in the modern church would even think to question it at all. December 25th, as Christ's birthday is a man-made tradition with no basis in historical fact. And neither is Moses being 40 at the time of the event in Egypt that Stephen refers to. It's just a man-made tradition. But Lord, help anyone who would dare to challenge either of those things. Yeah. Yeah. But that is the power of home held customs and traditions and doctrines, especially in a religious environment. So sometimes the effect is benign, but at other times it is malignant and causes grievous doctrinal error. Um, In verse 25, Stephen makes the point that Moses, like Joseph, was rejected by his brother Israelites. Again, this is to point out the connection to Yeshua. But Stephen says Moses was rejected because the Hebrews didn't understand that he was to be their deliverer, their savior. So he kind of softens his rhetoric by making the Israelites early rejection of Moses and Joseph and by association Yeshua to be due to ignorance rather than knowingly choosing to deny the son of God. Next Stephen quotes Exodus 2 Verse 14 and says that When Moses intervened in a dispute Among Hebrews they retorted Who made you ruler and judge over us So what we see is Moses' second act as a mediator But this time as a mediator Between two Israelites And these combatants question Moses' Authority over them But more, more they remind Moses of his first Act of med- mediation when he Killed an Egyptian for striking the Hebrew. So here we see God's future mediator mediate with both Gentiles and Hebrews on earthly matters. But we also see how hard-hearted the Hebrews had become. As a result, Moses fled to Midian for fear of prosecution and murder. So Stephen now turns to the moment when Moses became God's official mediator, as he describes the burning bush Event, but once again we see the synagogue tradition play a role in Stephen's speech he begins verse 30 by saying after 40 more years an angel appeared to him in the desert in fact the Torah does not say Moses's age when he fled Egypt nor how long he spent in Midian. the best Torah reference we get in determining Moses's age is in Exodus 7 verse 7 When we're told that Moses was 80 years old The first time he confronted Pharaoh So here Stephen merely just quotes Oral Torah Assuming it as fact I must say that I find it mildly amusing That since his speech wound up in the New Testament Moses being 40 when he fled Egypt And spending 40 years in Midian Is taken by the church to be Biblically and historically accurate When in fact it's actually just Synagogue tradition But So now Stephen starts to narrow his message and purpose by saying that Moses, the one who was rejected by the people of Israel, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge, is in fact the very ruler that God had chosen to be ruler and judge over his chosen people Israel. So in other words, they were wrong to question Moses. In fact, they at first ridiculed and rejected God's appointed ruler and judge. But this time Stephen adds to his characterization of Moses by adding the word ransomer. This, of course, starts to draw the story closer and closer to Yeshua. Stephen says in verse 36 that it is this man, Moses, who is God's deliverer, took Israel out of Egypt through great miracles and signs and led them through the desert wilderness for 40 years. And knowing that the synagogue members and the high priest and the Sanhedrin whom he was addressing wouldn't in any way dispute his logic and conclusion to this point, he now reminds them that this same Moses that was venerated by all Jews is the one who said that at a later time God would raise up a prophet like him from among the Israelites. The unspoken question is, so who is the prophet like Moses? Stephen returns to the theme of disobedience by saying that now that Moses' authority from God had been revealed, the people of Israel did not want to obey Moses. In other words, this was not an act of ignorance, but rather a display of willful rebellion against God. And by extension, against Moses, God's mediator. The intended implication is that it is not Stephen who is speaking against Moses, but rather it's his accusers who are the rebels. And he he uses the incident of the golden calf As an illustration of willful Knowing, intentional refusal To obey God There, Aaron, the high priest of Israel And, you know, don't miss Stephen's Implied connection between what Aaron did And what Caiaphas is currently doing Built God images And led the people into rebellion And into worshipping false gods This immense, undying respect that Stephen is showing towards Moses is the answer to Caiaphas' question about whether the accusations against him were true. And at the same time, Stephen is turning the mock trial over on his head. He's now He went from being the accused to becoming the accuser by comparing his prosecutors with the worst of the historical rebels against God and Moses, making them one and the same. And don't think for a second that everyone there didn't fully comprehend what Stephen was doing. I'm pr- pretty sure that they knew. So his words were, are not meant to defend himself, something accusers are kind of expected to do. But they are meant to turn the tables to accuse his accusers. The discourse is also meant to remind the members of the Sanhedrin, as well as the angry men of the synagogue of the freedmen. Who were the ones who dragged Stephen to the Jewish high court and claimed that he had blasphemed both God and Moses? That the history of the Hebrews is all about their rejection of God's prophets who bring messages of warning and chastisement from the Lord, and then their bewilderment when they are oppressed by foreigners and exiled from the Promised Land. So during this speech, Stephen draws intentional parallels between Joseph, Moses, David, and Yeshua this infuriates all who are present even more but in reality stephen was doomed nearly from the beginning of his acceptance of christ because of his background and his nature stephen was an outspoken bold and fearless man who today would probably be labeled a fanatic but he was also a a hellenist jew which meant that his first language was greek while this was the norm outside of Judea, in Jerusalem it was frowned upon by the Holy Land Jews, even though Greek was heard everywhere throughout the city. You could certainly make the argument that he was you could make the argument that he was a Samaritan. But um They were a people group that was despised and rejected by by the mainstream Jewish community.
1: Now, as a believer in Yeshua as
0: Messiah, he was part of a small minority faction within Judaism, one whose reason for merely existing was not accepted as legitimate by those of the rest of Judaism. So Stephen was a pariah to Jews, Judaism, the temple, and to the synagogue. And he seemed to have gone out of his way to speak his mind to anyone who would listen. And he paid the ultimate price for his uncompromising stance on issue. Let's pray. Avina my kingdom, my father, my king. Father, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for this time to get to spend together, learning more about your word and more about you in the process. I pray, Father, that you would just help our hearts to be open to what was said today. And you'd just be with us today. And you share his name. Amen. I Alright. Um, at this time, I'll open it up to any comments or questions. I'm not even going to look in Xavier's direction. <laughs> 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 I see Brian. All right, yeah. I think it was, it's interesting. Because uh, you know, when Peter
1: and uh, the other apostles came out and gave the speech. Uh, during um, Shalah it says that the men were cut to the heart. Mm-hmm. And so they were convicted by the rule of and they turned and they But here, when Stephen speaks, it says the same thing that the Sanhedrin, all who were present, were cut to the heart, but then they gnashed their teeth at it. Mm-hmm. And so they were convicted. That their response back on that so when you were saying they knew what was going on yeah. the Bible says so because they, they were truly
0: convicted, but decided to be rejected. yeah that's right I mean the, the, the people in the Santa in the Dream were very highly educated intelligent men I mean they were not dummies by any stretch of the imagination hard hearted sure yeah. but I mean they were it wasn't lost on them what was going on in Stephen's speech I mean he pretty much used Israel's own history to turn everything back on them and that's what ultimately you know made them mad um as for as for Stephen being a a Samaritan um I don't think there's really any I don't think there's enough proof to really say that he was or wasn't um I think at the very most we can just conclude that he was a Hellenized Jew at best and um that's all I Josh. Oh, speaking about
1: Moses, uh, a lot of people, there, there's a lot of debate about the book of Jasher. Hmm. But in the book of Jasher, it says that it was 40 years from the time Moses left Egypt to the time he went back. Hmm. But like I said, there's a lot of debate about that book. That's true. So, yeah, we, and we
0: could be here like all day talking about that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, but our food would get bad. cold and we can't have that, can we? <laughs> Carol. About Stephen, even though he quoted some things that were not true,
1: do you think he was, do you think he was, as much as he knew, he thought he was saying
0: truth. I believe he did, yes. I don't believe he was a bad man by any stretch of the imagination. but no, grew up learning that. Yeah, I make mistakes, too, all the time, but it's, it's a, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and just,
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah. First of all, a really good breakdown of Act 7. I
0: appreciate the academic the way you presented it and a really good explanation of how um, he turned the accusations on his head. Uh, one just question about the seventy versus the seventy-five who went down to Egypt. Mm. Now Genesis says that uh, seventy from the house of Jacob right. went down, and Acts says that seventy-five of the kindred yeah. went down. So, like, if I said the house of Barajas yeah. and the family of Adrian, yeah. those wouldn't necessarily be the same thing, mm-hmm. right? Because house would kind of be the ones that came directly from. Mm. but family, now you've got the Beckers, and et cetera, et cetera, have you considered that maybe the 70
1: versus 75 might boat feature?
0: Yes. That's why I said this is just, this is just one viewpoint on this, I mean, we, we would have to, this teaching would probably go on another hour if we were to, like, present all the different views and things that we would, you know, that you can look at this particular uh, teaching. That's why I try to keep it as academic as possible by saying that it's widely accepted. The word that you know, scholarship says this. You know, but, Brian.
1: Yeah. Uh, to add to that, actually, the, uh, the account says that um, yeah, the seventy went went into Egypt, but then it mentions that Joseph was already there, so it it doesn't. It says 70, and then it kind of... So it didn't count. Joseph. It didn't count. It counts Joseph and his wife. It's possible. I Yeah. Yes? I was a little, like, confused with this um, teaching because, you know, when you see people saying about discrepancies in the Bible cause. Yeah. and a lot of it had to do with cultural and I, I like that now because it shows that, mm-hmm. it's not contradicting it's showing cultural differences can cause
0: right. those, those slight discrepancies but it doesn't mean that they're necessarily wrong and I think that kind of keeps with like, the theme of the last couple of weeks where languages have, you know, there's different uh, different sects of Judaism different, different um, people speaking different languages, having different traditions and when you put them all in the same room together you're going to like, I went, to a, I went to a Christian school my junior and senior year, and Bible class was always the most, it was a war zone every single day because you'd have, you had a, a, a teacher who was a Southern Baptist, and then you had kids in there who were Assemblies of God, Catholic, Jewish, and when the teacher would say something, hands would shoot up and say, well, my teacher said this, mine said that, and he would, you know, it was just a complete, you couldn't really get anywhere in that class because it was just a constant... Fight over whose teacher was correct, you know. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think that's what we're seeing here is just differences in language, and traditions, and. Mm.
2: I think too we need to keep in mind that the whole purpose behind Acts is to teach us about resurrection, taking us back to a place, back to a a, a point in our lives, a, a point in the life of of the people of God. It, it's a complete trip backwards and I think if you even if you looked at the uh, Torah portion this week the uh, the word bow that we talked about is and I, I believe that means come right yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but it gives you the concept of resurrection and it gives you that concept of Yeshua coming to resurrect us so what this is and and sometimes we want to we be a little bit hard on those people that were from those synagogues, and Stephen for being raised in a synagogue. But if you look around you, we all have been raised in that concept of the synagogue. This, uh, going back to the roots of this, and back to the very beginning, and uh, we listened to the teaching last night, and the uh, guy that was teaching says, you really, really, truly need to go back to the first three chapters of Genesis to develop the basis for everything that you're learning because the ideal is it's going to take us back. It's going to resurrect us from this life that we're living because we're aliens and foreigners in this land. We're just like the children of Israel was in Egypt. We're in a foreign land and resurrection is going to bring us from this foreign land back into the kingdom of God. We're being resurrected back. And, and you read the scriptures, it says, we're, he was the firstborn of many more. So we're the many more that's out there. And we've all been raised in that synagogue atmosphere. All of our concepts, all of our theories, until we got into this religion that we're in today, this walking that we're walking today, was not on a temple concept and for us to go back to that concept that garden concept it's it's sometimes a struggle but we are being resurrected from this what we're walking in stephen was being resurrected those guys that were uh arguing with him they were headed back that way and you know they were struggling there to get to that point the same way we are but we keep in mind that the whole concept behind what we're trying to work into and what we're moving into is this theory of resurrection we're gonna be changed and we're gonna be something different and we're gonna live in an atmosphere uh, different than what we have ever ever thought about it's been a long time since man lived in the garden And and we have very little of those roots in us.